One second, I'm just setting it up. One moment, I'll be live. Okay, good evening. This is Bezik on Stocks. I'm your host, Ian Bezik. Tonight, this is episode 13 of the show, and we'll be talking about the alcohol industry, beer, wine, and spirits. And thank you. It looks like a lot of people are already joining, so I'd want to thank you for your support. Uh, and I'd apologize in advance for the background noise. Uh, my wife and I are out looking at lots uh, here in a small, small city outside of Cartagena. So we were just out doing that, and so we're actually... As weird as it sounds, we're at an AMC-owned movie theater at their bar here in, in Colombia, and I am drinking a Heineken in honor of the show that we're doing tonight, and so I'm at a AMC bar uh, here in Colombia uh, outside of a movie theater, so that kind of goes with what we're doing, but anyways, uh, sorry, one second, I'm just getting the tweet up to get this live. All right, yep. And so the alcohol industry. This is, if you've been following me for a while, you know this is one of my favorite places to invest out of anything. Um, looking at a study that I've quoted quite a few times out of 30 industries in the U.S. Uh, that were studied between 1933 and 2015, alcohol was the second best performing industry out of all the stocks that were there, only trailing tobacco. Alcohol uh, generated real, so after inflation returns of more than 7% a year, and inflation over those years averaged something in the 5% range, and so that would be something like a 12% total return uh, in nominal terms uh, over the past 82 years through 2015. So obviously if you can get 12% a year compounded for uh, 80 years, so like the entire life of someone, more than their investing career, uh, it's pretty amazing returns. And I know that there's many people that are huge fans of tobacco, and I understand that. I own Altria, I own British American Tobacco. Obviously, those have been great businesses as well. Uh, however, I would say that right now, uh, I would say that nicotine as an industry will keep existing. Obviously, people want to keep consuming nicotine, and we're looking at the alternative forms of consuming that. However, you could easily see cigarettes as a business go away. Uh, I don't know, over the next, let's call it 15 or 20 years, uh, there's a lot of social factors against cigarettes, whereas alcohol doesn't face any of the same existential risks as tobacco. And so in terms of, yeah, you look at the industries that have performed best over the last 80 years, it would be oil and gas, it would be food, it would be technology, it would be alcohol, it would be tobacco. And I think all of those are good investments, uh, but alcohol has been number two, and I'd say tobacco at number one faces some, some real problems. And that's nothing is tobacco, just the alcohol is my favorite of all the industries that exist. And that's why if you look at my portfolio, what I own personally, Diageo, Brown Foreman, uh, CCU, these are some of my largest positions. And tonight I'm going to go through why. I'm going to give you a brief overview of the alcohol industry as a whole, I'll talk about some individual stocks, and then I'll open up the line for uh, your comments, questions, concerns, anything like that. All right, so... Yeah, so let's look at the U.S. market. We'll talk about the U.S. market and then the global market. The U.S. market, Diageo, uh, is the number one by a, by a wide margin. Number two, which may be a surprise, is Beam Suntory, which is owned by a Japanese company. It is private, so there's no stock uh, that's publicly traded. However, that's the number two, thanks to its American whiskey portfolio that's very large, and it owns some other spirits companies as well. 
Uh, but like I mentioned, that's not publicly traded, so there's nothing that we can do there as investors. Number three is Brown Foreman, uh, which owns Jack Daniels, obviously the best-selling whiskey in the world. Uh, also owns the Herradura, uh tequila from Mexico, which they bought back in 2006, I believe. It's the second or third largest tequila in the world. has done very well for them. They're also very large in ready-to-drink products. So that's your cocktails, your Jack and Cokes in a can, your tequila sunrises in a can, that sort of thing. Pernod Ricard, a French company, is number four in the U.S. market. They sell Pernod, obviously. They sell, uh, let's see, where's the list here? Um, they have some other big brands, obviously, because they're number four. Uh, where's my... Uh, let's see... Sorry, I don't have it in front of me, but Pernod has some very large brands. Number five is Bacardi, uh, which is the Cuban company that obviously makes Bacardi rum. And they were forced out of Cuba when the, when the Castro took over there, but they've relocated in the Caribbean. They've done very well in rum. Rum is not really a growing brand anymore, but they were smart enough to take over Patron, which obviously has been a huge brand. Uh, and they've taken over some other brands as well. So Bacardi's is large. That's your top five in the U.S., and then after that, you've got some other, like Hennessy, which obviously I think most people know what Hennessy is. Tito's Vodka, which is, that's their only brand, but it's the number one vodka in the U.S. now, so that's become a very large player. People see them as a merger target or something. And then Sazerac, uh, which owns a lot of low, how do you call it, uh, lower tier brands, like regional brands, like a, a liquor, some sort of drink that's associated with a city or region, like Sazerac, you wouldn't know them as a national brand, but they own hundreds of labels that would show up. Like if you go to Pennsylvania and there's like a Pittsburgh liquor that would be owned by Sazerac. Uh, in terms of the global market, the industry is very fragmented. Uh, from what I've read, 20% of the market is owned by Diageo globally, which is pretty impressive. I mean, in terms of all of the liquor and beer and wine and all sold in the world. Diageo owns 20% of that. And then after that, there's no other uh, very large player. The next largest players are all, all closely tied. Pernod, Bacardi, Suntory, and Brown Foreman are all around 5 to 6% of market share. And then that's your top five players, but they all combined are less than 50% of the total market. So there's a lot of room for consolidation. There's a lot of local and regional brands. There's a lot of national liquors that haven't been consolidated into bigger players. Okay, and so in terms of which uh, which spirits are doing well, which spirits aren't doing well, uh, and this is a North American perspective because, I mean, I'm from the U.S. and I live in Latin America now, so America is, is my category. Uh, but tequila has been the biggest grower, obviously, in terms of... Sorry. Uh, yeah, um, so tequila has been the biggest winner over the past 10 to 15 years. Uh... Sorry, the internet was weird here. Um, yeah, so tequila's grown tremendously. I believe it's tripled in size in North America. Uh, it used to be seen as just a specialty drink, and now it is, uh, I believe it's the second largest spirit in the U.S. It's grown significantly in Canada. It's starting to gain inroads in Europe. Uh, tequila's been a tremendous business. Uh, interestingly, 80% of the tequila business is owned by three companies, which would be Cuervo, which is a the Mexican tequila company, Diageo and Brown Foreman. And so if you followed me for a long time, you know I own a ton of Diageo and I own a ton of Brown Foreman. And I don't own any Cuervo yet, but that's probably a mistake of omission. 
Uh, tequila has been a tremendous business. Margins are high. It's been it's been growing tremendously. The only issue really with tequila has been that there's been a shortage of agave, which is the the base material. Like you make vodka out of potatoes, you make wine out of grapes, you make tequila out of agave. Agave all has to come from one department, one state of Mexico. And there's been a lot of weather problems there and also cartel problems. And so there's been a big shortage of agave that's caused uh, some pricing issues on the tequila side. There's been a shortage. The big players like Brown Foreman and Diageo, have, they, own, they own their own suppliers in Mexico. And so they've been able to produce tequila, but kind of the smaller competitors have been forced out. Um, you may be familiar, mezcal is kind of a more refined form of tequila. It's less processed. It, it's kind of a stronger taste. Uh, many people don't like it, but a lot of other people do. I think uh, if tequila has been the big trend of the past 10 years, maybe Mezcal will be following that. Uh, Pernod Ricard in particular is heavily invested there. They've put a tons, hundreds of millions of dollars into their Mezcal business. Uh, however, they're up against Brown Foreman, which has been the leader in the tequila category in North America for many years. So that will be a challenge. And also Cuervo which is the Mexican tequila company. They're also strong in mezcal. Uh, American whiskey is growing strongly, so that's good news for Beam, and that's good news for Brown Foreman. Uh, the industry experts I've talked to see blended scotch is flat to slightly underperforming. Uh, single malt is doing well, but cu uh, customers are prioritizing the older age products, like 20 years plus. So the, if you're a craft company or a newer company just trying to sell five, 10 year age products, that's not gonna work. People want older products, people want higher quality. Uh, the people I talked to said the demographic there is quite a bit older. And so that's a very upscale market. Uh, rum is neither up nor down. People say it's just in line with how the spirits industry is going overall. Uh, yeah, so on tequila in particular, because tequila is the most interesting spirit in terms of the American market. Here's the uh, vice president of Pernod, who said the following, quote, tequila is taking a huge role in the spirit market because of the trend in terms of most of the United States and Latin America. You have California, the population of white Americans dropping and getting older. You have a population of Latinos that is growing heavily. You have tequila taking a much bigger role. It has outpaced gin and vodka. Gin and vodka, these categories are doing very poorly, whereas tequila is doing very well. Like I said, 80% of tequila is Cuervo, Diageo, and Brown Foreman. So if you're bullish on, on Mexico, on Latin America, on those uh, demographic groups in the U.S. and in, in the region, I think you have to own at least one of those companies. And as I said, I own two. Uh, there's more than 500 tequila companies that are registered with the Mexican government. To be an official tequila producer, you have to produce it from uh, one particular state, Mexico. So it's all controlled by the government in the same way that, like, if you're going to produce particular French products, such as champagne, it has to come from a certain region of that country. So all the tequila from Mexico comes from a very small portion of their country. And they're, like I said, there's more than 500 producers of tequila. And yet more than 80% of all tequila that's sold in the world comes from just the three companies, Cuervo, Diageo, and Brown Foreman. So I would say that that's as close as you get to a monopoly out there. And it's going to be a very powerful monopoly in the tequila and mezcal, which is the... Uh, kind of more refined version of tequila is growing very quickly. Uh, differences in market, um, particularly this, this refers to the United States. Um, I don't know, this is going to be a little hard to explain if you're not from the U.S., but if you're from the U.S., you probably know each state, uh, each of the 50 states has a different alcohol and liquor licensing regimen. 
You have control markets, which are ones where the local government puts a lot of uh, stipulations in terms of how you sell liquor. Like maybe you have to get a license uh, from the state. Like if you're a liquor store, you have to go to the state and get a permit to sell liquor. Or in some states, uh, the government, like I believe in Pennsylvania, the government owns the liquor stores, and so you can only buy liquor at a at a state-owned store. Whereas in other states, such as California, for example, there's no restrictions. So anyone, Walmart, Costco, Kroger, whatever, anyone can sell liquor. And so this makes a big difference in terms of the profitability of uh, for liquor, uh, beer, wine, and liquor companies. Like California, for example, is the largest free market uh, state in the U.S. So you can sell full spirit strengths, uh, full strength spirits, excuse me, in any store. Uh, you can have coupons, you can have discounting, there's marketing. Um, California is a very free market and so the liquor companies can do whatever they want in terms of advertising on the internet and there's still restrictions like you can't advertise to children, you can't advertise in magazines or newspapers or whatever Uh, but you can advertise on Facebook on on the internet you can set up displays in the stores, people can try your product like you can walk into Walmart and try a sample of a tequila for example in California whereas if you go to Pennsylvania all the stores are state run and there's no discounting. It's illegal to discount there. Um, yeah, so there's a big difference. Uh, oddly enough, you'd expect that in the free market states that there would be more consumption of alcohol because there's more marketing, there's more more companies competing for your product. However, ironically enough, the consumption per capita is exactly the same in both markets. And as a side note, this is why tobacco has been so successful because tobacco is totally illegal to market cigarettes to anyone, uh, pretty much in all of the developed world. And so when you cut marketing spend to zero, uh, obviously you make a lot more money because that's generally the largest expense line for consumer products companies. But anyway, in a state like California, you make a lot less money as an alcohol company because you have to compete uh, pretty aggressively. In a state like Pennsylvania with the Northeast, uh, sorry, got a pop-up message, but all right, back. Um, yeah, so in a state like uh, Pennsylvania, the Northeast, or a lot of the South, like Mississippi, Alabama, you make a lot more money um, because you don't have to compete at all. You don't have to discount. Uh, there are some companies that are a lot better in terms of competition. Like Diageo is the strongest. Diageo is a very social company. Like their their employees are trained in terms of winning talking to people, going to events. Diageo is at all the concerts, all the festivals. Diageo is everywhere in terms of social marketing. And so Diageo has been very strong in terms of pushing their brands with consumers. Whereas someone like a Sazerac, for example, that sells uh, low-end spirits, they they really don't do any marketing. And so they do better in markets where there's no competition. Like people just have to walk into a state-run store. There's no discounting, there's no coupons, there's no people there offering you samples. And so companies like Sazerac or companies like Beam that don't really discount, they do very well. Also, you have older regional spirits, like your spirits associated with a particular state or a particular region, like, a, I don't know, a rum associated with, with Florida, let's say, will do very well there when there's no competition. But when they have to compete against the international brands, they'll do a lot less. You have things like all these new celebrity tequilas, for example, that, like, George Clooney can launch a tequila and it will do very well in a market like California or Colorado where there's no limitations on competition, uh, but it'll do much less in a controlled state. Uh, Yeah, so 
that's the big point there in markets where you don't have to compete with Walmart or Costco or whatever. You earn a lot more money. Um, but the companies like Diageo that are very good at marketing do better in the control state and the uncontrolled states, excuse me. And so we're seeing the alcohol market liberalized a lot, like with uh, what's happened with marijuana and now even magic mushrooms are being legalized in a lot of places. Uh, we're seeing restrictions being lifted on alcohol. That is going to be very positive for Diageo and very negative for companies that sell the lower end brands. So good for Diageo, good for Brown Foreman because uh, Jack Daniels essentially sells itself. Jack, uh, Brown Foreman earns the highest margin in the industry. Uh, they don't have to market and they don't market. Even in the states where marketing is permitted, Brown Foreman doesn't market. That's why they earn such huge margins. So the way things are going in the U.S., I'd say it's very good for Diageo and Brown Foreman and less good for the the other competitors. In terms of regional differences in the alcohol market, here's uh, Vice President of Pernod, uh, Ricardin, speaking again, Qu uh, quoting him, quote, when you look, for example, in Texas, what they call Canadian whiskey, it's very popular, Crown Royale, it's the top leader in the Texas marketplace. Uh, when you look at California, for example, you have much more Asian influence there, so you have a much stronger cognac business. When you look at Florida, they have more Latin Americans, so you have tequila and rum there, for example. Uh, New York and Chicago are probably the most whiskey-driven markets in the U.S. That kind of gives you a sense of, even in one country, you have a lot of difference in terms of what sorts of products are most popular. Um, a big thing has obviously been COVID. Uh, there's been a mixed response in terms of how that's at the industry, some companies have benefited, others have done less well. So I'll try to uh, walk you through how that's happened. Uh, the big thing was sales at home, like people just drinking at home has actually gone up significantly since COVID started. And contrary to what you might expect, this is more profitable for the liquor companies when, if you drink at home, they make more money than when you drink at a restaurant or a bar or whatever. The preferred, um, the preferred size, the liquor companies make the most on their 750 milliliter, the handle bottles. That's where they make the highest margin. Uh, when they're selling you the small bottles, like the 175, so the, the airplane bottles, those are sold at a lower margin. And so the one liter bottles that you tend to see at like casinos or stadiums or other venues, that is a much lower margin business. Those are sold in volume, like they sell at uh, 24 like cases. And so... I mean, they sell them because they have to sell something to a place like a casino. But those are sold in bulk, not at retail, so those are not nearly as profitable. Whereas when you can sell in a retail store or a grocery store or whatnot, uh, those are much higher margin. And so actually the pandemic was very good for companies like Brown Foreman, where people say, I want a bottle of Jack Daniels, and they don't care. They don't care if their Jack Daniels is coming from a restaurant or a bar or from a grocery store. And Brown Foreman makes a much higher margin on the, store, on the bottle that you buy at at Kroger or Walmart or whatnot than if you get a shot of, of Jack Daniels at a bar. And so the pandemic was good for Van Foreman. It was good for Diageo. It was arguably good for Pernod. It was very bad for a company, particularly the beer companies, where they're relying on volume. Like beer, in particular, uh, like an AB InBev, uh, Anheuser-Busch, or, or uh, Molson Coors, they make their money from selling tons and tons of beer. They don't make their money from selling premium beer. They just they want to sell you tons and tons of bottles or cans of of Miller Lite or Bud Light or whatever. And so those companies just got got absolutely beaten up from the pandemic. 
uh, Molson Coors in particular, which unfortunately I own and has been a very powerful performer, that has a huge on-premise business in Central and Eastern Europe, like and that that's 70% on-premise, like almost all restaurants and bars and so that just got absolutely just wiped out over the past two years. Whereas if you're a liquor company like Brown Foreman, that you got to benefit from from the pandemic. And so I see a lot of analyst coverage. I see a lot of people talking about the industry and just saying the pandemic was good or bad, like an absolute. But you have to look at each individual company. There's been a huge difference. I think a company like Molson Coors that performed particularly poorly during the pandemic, you're going to see a big reopening benefit. Uh, maybe that's not priced into people's models. And so I think that's an opportunity for people. Uh, in terms of e-commerce, uh, direct sales have been taking off, but primarily in beer and wine. Uh, laws vary around the world, but in the U.S., uh, there are almost all states per, uh, don't permit the sale of alcohols over 15% ABV, so alcohol by value, uh, over the Internet. And so basically you can't sell liquor over the Internet. There are a couple of states where there's an exception, but basically in most places you can't sell whiskey or tequila or rum or whatever over the internet. But you can't sell wine and you can't sell beer. And so, um, yeah, so you could obviously imagine the, the consequences of that. Um, but e-commerce is generally less profitable for the alcohol companies as opposed to selling in store anyway. So uh, in a backdoor sort of way, maybe that's good for the spirits companies because the beer companies have given up a lot of it's so expensive to deliver beer to people's houses in terms of the volume and the delivery, like a 24-pack of, of Miller Lite, for example, is not worth very much. And so delivering that is not a great business anyway. So maybe it's better for the spirits company so people still have to drive to the store and get it delivered to their car or whatnot. Uh, as far as beer goes, uh, volumes have still been quite poor in most of the world, uh, particularly in some places where the pandemic is still going strong in terms of Asia and some places in South America, like uh, Argentina, for example, is very slow to reopen from, from COVID. And so you've seen very weak results, like uh, Ambev, which is the South American uh, beer company, has been very weak. Some of the Asian brewers have been very weak. Uh, from my understanding, the World Cup is going to be a comeback moment for a lot of the beer companies. It's the biggest drinking occasion worldwide, maybe not in the U.S. Like People in the U.S. don't really care about soccer that much. Uh, but here, like in South America, Argentina and Brazil have both qualified. Uh, it's going to be a huge moment for drinking. Finally, everything's reopened here in terms of uh, all your restaurants and bars and whatnot are open. Uh, people are lifting the mask mandates. So this could be a big reopening event for beer. Companies like Ambev should have a much better 2022 than 2021. All right, switching gears in terms of the consumer behavior, quoting the VP, uh, Vice President of Bernard Ricard again, in terms of how things have been changing. Uh, he he told me, quote, it's normal to have a person that drinks, let me say Jack Daniels, they pay $50 a bottle for this person evolves in their taste and starts to really get more money as their work career pro uh, progresses. They start to go towards more expensive American whiskey bourbons or they start to really drink blended whiskey. They start to drink, let's say, eight years old aged products, 12 years, 15 years, big ages. Or finally, they go to single malt and they keep following the same brands. If these guys, if these workers are successful, eventually, once he's getting closer to retirement, he'll spend $800, $900 on a bottle when he wants to drink a 25 year old something, a uh, bottle of sophisticated Macallan or whatever. Uh, 
but he adds the orders for innovation is uh, now is to really recruit and retain millennials because millennials are completely di uh, different demographic and behavior. They're very trendy in terms of what's going on. Uh, all these liquor companies have to invest a ton in brand ambassadors and sponsorships because in the past, like you had your older generation that would just they would climb that in terms of the uh, success ladder, where they would drink the entry level Jack Daniels and then as they did better in their careers, they would they would buy. Uh, more and more upscale uh, bottles from the same vendor, but nowadays when people have more money, they want to buy craft. They go to, they want to try out different experiences, and so there's not necessarily the same uh, experience chain that would happen with with your boomers or your other older generations. And so this is going to be one of the biggest challenges for liquor companies going forward is that they're not necessarily like. You can still sell a ton of liquor to, to younger people, uh, but as they get older, are they going to stay loyal to your brands? Will they follow the, the usual trend in terms of going towards your more premium products? So that's going to be a challenge for the industry as a whole. Probably the biggest challenge. Uh, I'd say craft is much less of a concern in spirits than it is in beer. Obviously, in beer, it's been a large problem already. However, it's still something you have to watch out for. And then going into the individual companies, um, we'll start with Diageo, ticker DEO in the U.S. It's also in London. Uh, it's the global leader by far, 20% of the global market. And I believe the next largest player is 7%. So Diageo is, is your giant uh, by large scale. Diageo made its business on Irish whiskey as opposed to American whiskey, it's by far the most important player there. That's a premium, well-respected product. They've done very well there. They've added, Diageo has strong players in vodka and rum and a whole bunch of categories in tequila. Diageo is uh, Don Julio, which is the number one tequila in the world by volume. Uh, not by volume, excuse me, by value. Uh, Cuervo, uh, Jose Cuervo is the largest vendor um, in terms of volume ever. Cuervo has seven different brands to reach that goal, whereas Don Julio is your number one brand uh, individually. Diageo is famous for buying celebrity brands, like they bought the Casa Amigos from, from George Clooney. They've bought a bunch of other celebrity brands. Uh, they've made a bunch of big moves in India and China. Diageo is an M&A machine. They're always doing stuff. Um, critics have said that they overpay for their acquisitions, which I tend to agree with, and Diageo tends to get a much lower valuation than Brown Foreman and then Bernard Ricard, because people don't love their capital allocation, which I understand. However, it's by far the number one biggest player in the world, has a good balance sheet, uh, has a good dividend policy. Uh, they're very good at marketing. Uh, everyone I talk to in the industry says that Diageo is the best at marketing. It's a very strong company in terms of their social events, like uh, whenever you're going to festivals, whenever you're going to concerts, uh, sporting events, Diageo is always out there. They're giving you free samples of their products. They're giving you discounts in markets for that's permitted. It's a very strong in-person marketing company. It, the sales force is second to none. Like everyone else in the industry gets their salespeople from Diageo. And so it's hard to overstate how good they are in terms of social marketing. Uh, but that leads to an issue now in terms of for the past two years, there's been no in-person marketing, obviously, due to the pandemic. A lot, from what I understand, a lot of salespeople left Diageo just because there's nothing to do. And their whole sales model was from going to these in-person events. 
Um, so people I've talked to are very curious to see if Diageo will still be as strong in terms of marketing as they were prior to the pandemic. And I'm not sure how to judge that yet. So that's going to be something to watch. Uh, however, if Diageo can regain the same level of marketing expertise that it had prior to the pandemic, it's, it's still going to be your global leader by far. Um, at the current stock price, I don't love Diageo, but I mean, I own a bunch of it. I think it'll perform well. Uh, but it's definitely not a discount. Like in 2016 and 2017, it was selling at 18, 19 times earnings, which was a very good deal. And it's not anywhere near that price anymore. So I like Diageo. I, I see it as a whole. Um, yeah, I think that's enough on that. Brown Foreman, uh, this is my favorite play in, in the alcohol industry right now, or at least in terms of the high quality ones. This is by far the highest quality of the alcohol companies. Uh, owns your Jack Daniels, which is arguably the best spirits brand in the world. It also owns Aerodota, which is a huge tequila brand. Uh, management was very smart in terms of they bought that in 2006. I believe they only paid $900 million for it now, and it's uh, arguably worth five, at least five times that now. They caught on to the tequila brand before anyone in the U.S. saw it coming. Uh, because up until maybe 10 or 15 years ago, tequila was just a little Mexican drink that no one really cared about. Uh, now, obviously, it's exploded. It's the second largest spirit in the U.S. It's getting big in Canada. It's starting to take off in Europe. Uh, tequila is huge, and Brown Foreman was great to get its boots on the ground there very early. And uh, When you combine that with whiskey, I think it's interesting in that Brown Foreman is the perfect Mexican company. It's not a Mexican company. It's obviously a U.S. company. However, if you look at the Mexican market, tequila is 40% of the liquor that's sold in Mexico. And whiskey is the next 25%. So uh, 65% of your Mexican market, which Mexico is a country of 130 million people that is rapidly getting wealthier. Um, 65% of your market is tequila and whiskey and Brown Foreman and can arguably be the number one in both of those in Mexico. And so I see this as the perfect way to play the Mexican consumer in terms of alcohol experience in Mexico. Brown Foreman has a huge ready-to-drink line of products. When I was living in Mexico, you go to the convenience stores, there's a whole shelf, like a whole refrigerator of Brown Foreman ready-to-drink products, the canned uh, tequila sunrises, the Jack and Cokes, the... There's so much, like, they have, like, eight, nine different canned products there. That's, like, 20% of their sales in Mexico. It's a very, very good product. Yeah, and so I think Brown Foreman has done a very good job putting their cards on the table in terms of expanding in Mexico and expanding in Latin America, riding the tequila wave, which has been extremely profitable. Uh, one thing people don't realize, their gross margin is closer to 80%. Brown Foreman's a, a conservative company. They... They, in terms of gross margin in particular, they include distribution costs in their gross margin, which they don't have to do and their competitors don't do. And so Brown Foreman's reported gross margin is 61%, which puts it in line with Diageo and Pernod. But if they reported gross margin the same as their peers, their gross margin would be 80%. And obviously they're the best in the industry. And I believe they, they deserve to trade a far higher multiple than their peers. And so when you see them close to the same PE ratio as Diageo, which happened recently, that's uh, obviously a mistake. Brown Foreman deserves to trade a much higher multiple. Uh, the stock's at near 52-week lows, and I think that's ridiculous. Brown Foreman here is $60, particularly for the A-class shares, is, is a giveaway. I think the stock should be closer to 80 or 90 now. So uh, it's one of my favorite ideas right now. Uh, moving on, Pernod Ricard, uh, French company that was foreign by the mergers of Pernod and Ricard, two different spirits brands, also Allied and Domecq, 
I don't know how to pronounce it, and absolute vodka. Uh, people view it as poorly run. However, that may change. The whole Pernod U.S. management team, like the entire management team, was fired a couple of years ago, and they brought in a new management team from PepsiCo. Uh, Paul Singer of Elliott, who you've probably heard of, put 1 billion euros into the company uh, just prior to the pandemic, and presumably... He's looking for quick changes there to uh, fix the company. So perhaps Bernard will be better run going forward. I can't really recommend it to you based on his past results, but things could definitely improve. Uh, moving on, Bacardi is the next largest player globally. Unfortunately, it's private, so there's nothing really we can do there from an investment perspective. It owns, obviously, Bacardi Rum, also Patron and Grey Goose. Um, but yeah, there's no stock there, so nothing we can really do. Uh, next up, there's Cuervo, which is the Mexican company. It was supposed to list in the U.S. in 2016, but then Trump won the election, so it ended up listing in Mexico instead of the U.S., which was unfortunate. Um, but yeah, if you have access to the Mexican market, it's traded there. It's half of the tequila market internationally. Like I said, 80% of the market is Cuervo, Brown Foreman, and Diageo, and Cuervo itself is half. So if you're bullish on tequila, you, you should probably own Cuervo. It's lost some of the upscale business to Diageo, but it's by far the largest player in the rest of the market. Uh, and it's the original tequila company, been in business since 1758. Uh, very strong with Hispanics. Like a lot of Mexicans in the U.S. will only drink Cuervo products. They don't want anything from Brown Foreman or Diageo. So as the Hispanic population rises in the U.S., probably good for Cuervo. Uh, and they own seven brands. Uh, uh, Cuervo is obviously the only one with a name on it, but they own 1800, they own Centenario, they own Doble. And so, yeah, if you only think of it as Cuervo, you're probably missing out on the, the rest of their business. Uh, moving to wine, there's Duckhorn, which I own Duckhorn. It's an um, upscale wine brand, just uh, IPO'd last year. Uh, wine is a difficult business, much harder than beer spirits. You've got weather, you've got a lot more competition, you've got a lot of people that they want to make wine kind of as a prestige thing so in general i don't recommend wine stocks however duckhorn is appears to be becoming the luxury brand that's publicly traded kind of the lvmh of wine uh, in 2021 when upscale wine was getting absolutely destroyed because restaurants were closed people weren't having parties or anything in their house because of covid duckhorn posted 17 percent year-over-year sales growth whereas the wine industry as a whole was down eight percent so that was 25% uh, alpha compared to the industry as a whole. So I think that gives you a sense of how strong Duckhorn is as a brand. Um, yeah, so as they're reopening, I think you could see 30 40% top-line growth on Duckhorn. The stock is, is expensive, but it's come down a lot. I think it's the most interesting of the wine stocks. Uh, finally, there's CCU, the Chilean company that is the monopolistic brewer of beer in that country, 60% of the beer market in Chile, also a big player in beer in Argentina and a few other countries. Um, I mentioned it because the wine, they export Gato Negro, which is one of the largest wine brands internationally. I believe it's the largest uh, imported wine in China, uh, but it's also, like I said, the monopoly beer in Chile. I'm very bullish on Chile uh, with the copper and lithium and everything taking off. I think you're going to see a lot higher spending and also a lot higher Chilean peso. So I really like CCU here. The stock has barely bounced. The rest of the Chilean index is up a ton. So I really like CCU here. Um, turning to the U.S. beer company, Sam Adams, hit driven company. Uh, Sam Adams, a craft beer, whatever. It's more or less. It's fine. 
but the stock went up a bunch like five years ago because of Angry Orchard, the cider that did very well, and then it crashed, and the stock went from like 350 to 150, and then I launched the Truly Seltzer. Stock went from 300 to I think like 1200, and then Hard Seltzer kind of died out. And so the stock went from 1200 back to 300 And so if you're buying it here, you're betting on management coming up with another cool trend, which may very well happen. But if they can't find something new, I think it's trading like 35 times their non-seltzer earnings. So still not that exciting to me. Uh, Molson Coors, which is the owner of uh, Molson, obviously, the Canadian brewer in Coors, the U.S. brand. Uh, it's very cheap. It's hated. People think the management team's awful which we can debate. I think the management team's mediocre, which is, I think, good enough because it's trading at 11 times earnings. They've paid down more than a billion dollars of debt over the past year. Sales are growing again. I'm not sure why the market hates this company this much. Like you look at the, the staple, like the packaged foods companies with shrinking businesses like cereal, yogurt, uh, ketchup, like things that people don't care about anymore. Those are trading at 17, 18 times earnings right now, and Molson Coors is trading at 11 times earnings. Uh, and I would argue that beer is a higher margin, better business than, say, cereal. So I believe Molson Coors deserves to trade a lot higher. Uh, like I said, they're paying down their debt. They're increasing their dividend. Sales are growing again. Uh, there's a big reopening benefit because they have a large business in Central and Eastern Europe where on-premise is finally coming back. I really like Molson Coors here, but it's the definition of a value trap, so we'll see. I may be wrong. I've been wrong on it before. I may still be wrong. Uh, and then there's AB InBev, obviously, Ticker Bud, uh, which was owned by 3G, and 3G, as you probably know, is very bad at marketing their products. Uh, they own Kraft Heinz as well, and Kraft Heinz has crashed under their, their leadership, as has AB InBev. Uh, I think the thing people don't realize, 50% of all of the global gross profit in beer goes to AB InBev, even now, in their diminished state. So for every dollar of beer profit that happens in the world, 50 cents of that goes to AB InBev. And so for all people say that they, they're not good at branding, they don't know how to market, that management is just riding their, their failing brands into the sunset. Like I said, for every $2 of beer profit in the world, $1 goes to them. So it's a business that someone could turn around, but you probably need activists or somebody there to fix it because 3G are a terrible management team. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, and CCU, like I said, I really like that one from Chile. Ambev, the Bud subsidiary in South America, I think you'll see that one come back this year. Brazil's finally turned the corner. Like I said, you have the World Cup as a catalyst. So bullish on Ambev, take your AMBV. Yeah, and so that's the overview of the different companies in the industry and the industry as a whole. And I will open the lineup for questions now. All right, anyone, questions, comments? Gary, you're up. Gary, good evening. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, thank you, Ian. Uh, I have two quick questions. Uh, one is yep. just in a more general approach. Uh, what do you think of the uh, emergence of marijuana companies? And how do you think that might go compared to uh, the 
alcohol companies going forward. Um, and then I have a second question too. All right, yeah, uh, so I think the first one out of marijuana. From what I understand, there's still not enough information to to really know how it's going to play out. I think a lot of people expect it will cut into the sales of alcohol, uh, which is understandable. That would make sense. Uh, I the states where marijuana is illegal long enough. Uh, sorry, could you mute your microphone? There's a lot of background noise. Um, in the states where marijuana has been legal the longest, in particular Colorado, alcohol sales have been roughly flat. From what I understand, they're only down low single digits. And so I believe marijuana was legalized in Colorado in 2012, if I remember right. So we're looking at 10 years of sales data there. And alcohol has done all right despite the, the marijuana legalization. So maybe that changes as it becomes legal in the whole country. Uh, that remains to be determined, but from what we've seen so far, I think I think they can be compatible. And you've seen a lot of interest in cross investments in terms of companies like Constellation Brands, which owns uh, Corona Beer, has invested heavily in marijuana, and they're trying to do CBD drinks. And there's a lot of cross selling there. So I don't think marijuana is a, a big problem to the alcohol industry. Maybe it's a minor drag at the margins, but I don't think it's a major problem. All right. So yeah. Second question. Okay. Yeah, uh, I was wondering if you could talk real quick about the uh, tender offer on Bachoco. Yeah, so I'll have to get back to you privately. I haven't, I haven't read about that. Yeah, okay. yeah uh, it was announced like after the close on Friday, so uh, there was some some talk in the forum today. Uh, yeah, let me Google it real quick, but I haven't. Uh, do you know the details? Uh, apparently, the uh, the ownership wants to take it private again and is uh, offering twenty percent above the average for the last month. All right, let's see. Yeah, twenty percent of eighty-one Mexican pesos per share. Yeah, that seems, uh, I'd argue that seems too low, but I mean, obviously we'll still make money if, if they buy us, it, that'd be, I believe, $49 a share US, which I believe the company's worth closer to 60, so I would prefer not to get bought out at 49, but, but whatever, it's not the end of the world. If they buy us at that price, we paid less for our shares, so. I, I will personally vote no if that's the offer they're giving us, but I mean, whatever. It's it's still a profit. I don't know. What do you think? Um, I don't know. It's been down recently. I think that's about what the uh, the fifty uh, fifty two week highs would be. Um, but yeah, I'd seen a a lot of volume going into it over the last couple of weeks, so I I think uh, that's probably why. Yeah, that makes sense. Obviously, every share that the insiders can buy at 40 is better than one that they have to pay a big premium for. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you. That makes sense. Yep. Absolutely. Have a great night. All right. Uh, Greg, you are up. Hmm. 
Hey, Ian. Yep. Good evening. Good evening. Hey. Uh, uh, back to UWM. Which one? Uh, UWMC. Okay, the the mortgage uh, underwriting company, yes? Right. So uh, I read a comment and a comment answer to that comment. Uh, the comment was the la latest uh, quarterly results that they're paying the temp uh, 10 cents a dividend per quarter and the earnings were 11 cents. And in the long run, if it's going to be that close, it may not be sustainable. And the, the responding comment to that was, well, uh, the uh, CEO, I think Matt something, he owns a bunch of shares. And really, the math is more complicated in that uh, he more or less only has to pay 10 cents per, uh, per share to the uh, public shares available. And uh, uh, a lot of the shares are not publicly available. So do you know anything about that more complex uh, structure? Uh, yes, that's correct. Almost all of the the vast majority of the stock is still owned by the insiders and by the company that owned uh, UWM prior to the SPAC deal that took it public. So yes, that's absolutely correct. And in terms of earnings, um, I hadn't been worried about it previously, but I mean, you look at mortgage rates now and the 30 years hit 5% this week. It was at 4.5% literally last week. It was at three and a half uh, just a few months ago. But I think like refinancing is pretty much going to disappear at a 5% mortgage rate. And this is probably going to hurt the new mar new house market as well. So uh, I hadn't been worried about UWM's earnings previously, but at a 5% mortgage rate, I'm starting to get concerned about the housing market as well. So uh, obviously the prices come down. I think it's still a reasonable value here, but uh, it's starting to get to be strong headwinds that the mortgage market's going against now. Well, I'm looking at $3 puts. So, I mean, my cost basis cost like $1.50 or even less. Sorry, what's that? You were cutting out there. Sorry. Uh, because the price went came down so much, I, I'm now starting to uh, sell $3 puts. So the, uh, 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 what do you call the, the cost... If, if you get um, assigned, is like $2.50. So that seems very cheap. Yeah, yeah, uh, that should still be fine. But yeah, in terms of the dividends, I wouldn't expect any increases from the 10 cent quarterly level. And if interest rates keep going up, like if mortgage rates keep going up, maybe they will cut the dividend. I wouldn't be shocked if they cut the dividend now. So I would not. I would not be too bullish on the stock from here, but I think at a $3 level, you're still fine in terms of uh, underwriting the stock at that price. All right, thanks. Mm -hmm. All right, anyone else? The line is open. All right, three, two, one. All right, thank you all for joining tonight for Bees Gone Stocks. I hope you learned something and appreciate your listenership. And we'll be back at it again next week. So until then, have a great evening. Bye-bye.